You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everyone. Would you like to join me in telling the Lord how we feel and what we think about the sun being out? I've had that dumb artificial sun lamp on in my office for like three weeks. I think the bulb's about to die. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, We're wrapping up our foundation series today, and next week we will be back in Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, There are parts of being a father that um, I'm not great at, especially when my kids were younger. I'll give you an example changing diapers. Um, And some of you men in here right now had to just restrain yourself from saying, amen. Um, I don't know why you restrained yourself. Uh, It didn't help me in that by the time my daughter was probably like three weeks old, my wife had turned into like this diaper changing ninja. Um, I mean, Morgan, I think could have blindfolded with one hand tied behind her back. She's got two legs in the air, whipping out a, a baby wipe and a new diapers on. And like, I haven't even seen it happen. And like, I'm left alone with the children for two hours and I'm like trying to solve a Rubik's cube. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? Just wasn't very good at handling all of that. Now, some of you guys, maybe you were, you were great at that. I know other guys who feeding their children was like the worst experience possible. Um, Like I know guys who basically their idea of accomplishing that is just put food in front of them, and if any of it winds up in their mouth, great. Um, Thankfully, we had two beagles when my kids were little, and I think they ate as well as our kids did at mealtime. But a lot of us feel this way, uh, but the reality of it is just because we're not a pro at some aspect of parenting or maybe we're not skilled at all the duties that we have as a father— This does not change our status or our role as a father, and it doesn't exempt us from those responsibilities either. Um, Now, sometimes we live and think and act like it does, but it doesn't. And I'm picking on dads this morning, especially younger dads, because I've been there and I understand that. But in cases like this, we want to excuse ourselves sometimes. Oh, you know, I'm just an ignorant dad. Well, maybe a lot of times we're just lazy. Or we're apathetic. Um, I think at the heart of it, though, lies this thing called self-centeredness. And the reason I bring that up to you this morning is we are living in a culture that is fostering and feeding self-centeredness through this thing called individualism. Individualism is rampant in the day and the time and the culture that we're living in. So that you understand what I mean when I say this, the first part of the definition of individualism is fairly telling. The dictionary says that it's the habit or the principle of being independent and self-reliant. But it's the second part of the definition that I think is pretty indicting on us. It says it's the state of favoring the freedom of the individual over the good of the collective. Now, some of you may read that or hear that and think, oh, that sounds pretty good to me. Well, I think it's fair to warn you 
that when individualism is on the rise, there are other things that begin to become more prominent with it. For example, the divorce rate. When individualism goes up, so does the divorce rate. Narcissism. And I'm not just talking about maybe that friend that you have that can't stop looking at themselves in the mirror. No, I'm talking like there's a real clinical diagnosis of narcissism and it's on the rise. How about just plain flat loneliness? Suicide rates go up. Lack of racial and ethnic diversity goes up. Do any of those sound familiar to you? They should because they're all pretty prevalent today. The divorce rate's going up. Narcissism is going up. Suicide rates are going up. Lack of racial and ethnic diversity. All of these things are going up. Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that so is individualism. Hey, whatever's good for you, whatever you want, whatever you think, that's up to you. It can be pretty depressing uh, when when you think about it. But see, Peter writes this letter to all of these believers and Christians who've been scattered out into these different cultures that are a lot like ours. And Peter's words are to them and to us, there is hope. And there's not just hope, there's living hope. And his name is Jesus. But be sure you understand, there's not just hope for those of you who have already trusted in him. There's hope for those out there who are still wandering in darkness, who are still desperate for peace, who are searching for purpose in life. And that hope is actually you. Because what God has said is, because I have come to indwell you, I've saved you with my son, I've indwelled you with my spirit, I have sent you out there to live out this living hope in front of a lost world. So that's who we are. That's what we're called to do. As we said last week, it's the how that we're called to do this that I think most often stumps us and trips us up. Because as we saw last week, Peter said that it would be through these lives of submission, that we would live these lives of humility and submission to those around us. And and that doesn't mean that we bow at every whim and at the feet of everything and everyone in our culture. No, in fact, we don't live as a slave to the culture. We live as a slave to the scripture. And and in that scripture, Peter says that we're going to live out there on everyday mission for the kingdom of God. So my life, every aspect of it. No, I'm not a missionary to Zimbabwe. I'm a missionary right here in Madison, Alabama. If you're a believer and a Christ follower, you're a missionary. You are on mission. Well, friends, if the how stumps us and trips us up, the result And the evidences of the how are going to be even harder for us. Because Peter's about to move from talking about submission to talking about suffering. But see, the hope that we have, again, in the midst of all of this, we can walk through suffering because we have this living, everyday hope. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 
1 Peter 3, we're going to begin in verse 8. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless people. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter repeats a lot of things that he's already said here about having brotherly love for one another, about being of one mind, unity of mind. And and then Peter moves into saying, and also we are to live these lives of imitation of Christ. He says this in a couple of different ways, but the main one is that if you go back into the second chapter, verse 23, Peter's describing Jesus and says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he did not threaten in return. He continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. Well, now Peter comes along and says to us, when you are reviled, do not revile in return. Do not repay evil for evil. Peter is saying you and I should imitate Christ. And then Peter quotes Psalm 34. It says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What's significant about Peter right here quoting Psalm 34 is that this is a psalm of David, King David. But it's before David was king. And very specifically, David wrote this psalm when he was running for his life from King Saul. Do you remember that happening? Well, why is this relevant here? Well, remember, Peter is writing to these Christians who have been scattered from Jerusalem, who when they were scattered, were running for their lives. Uh, The persecution that happened in Jerusalem, uh, it wasn't like a a political envoy came to town and said, hey, we'd really like you guys to kind of stop talking about this. No, Rome came and began killing people. They were genuinely running for their lives. David was running for his life from King Saul when he wrote this. Do you remember why? It's because David had been anointed to be the next king. Saul knew this. Saul was enraged with jealousy. He thought, well, surely if David's been anointed to be the next king, he's just going to come and kill me and go ahead and take the throne. So how does Saul decide to try and get rid of that, that problem? Well, I'll kill David first. So he begins pursuing David, trying to take his life. We know now on this side of history that not once, but twice, when Saul was pursuing David and trying to kill him, David actually could have taken Saul's life, and no one would have even known it was him. I mean, here's this schizophrenic king that wants to kill me. God's ordained me to be the next king. Why not just get him out of the way? Here's why. David refused to believe that the path to righteousness led through sin. 
And you and I have to be convinced of this as well. That God, the path that he lays before us that leads to his righteousness is not going to travel or take us through sin. David declares here that in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of Saul trying to take my life, my eyes are fixed on God. And so very, very relevant for Peter to come along and say, when you are reviled, do not revile in return. When you are paid evil, do not pay evil in return. Remember King David and what he endured because he refused to believe that God's path to righteousness would lead through sin. He goes on. Look at verse 13. Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, of those that want to persecute you or kill you, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set Christ apart as Lord. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Focus in for a second on Peter's words here. But now, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, even if you wind up suffering for righteousness sake, if we're setting apart Christ as Lord, if we are honoring Christ as holy with our lives, we will suffer. Peter says, Paul says, Moreover, Jesus says that that is the normal Christian life. Look, look here in the letter a little further ahead in chapter 4. Look at verse 12 with me. Peter says, Beloved, he calls us this again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted, and key part here, for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Turn for a second to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, this is at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is when Jesus is laying out what we refer to as the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. And remember, the entire Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, I have come in fulfilling the law to help you see this new way of living. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So friends, understanding all of this, I think it's important to point out that at this moment, um, most of us are not actively experiencing any kind of suffering or persecution or trial because of the name of Christ. And I think that that ought to spur us on to want to take at least a few minutes every once in a while and approach the Lord and ask, why? Why us? Why why do we seem to have a get out of suffering free card right now or something? Not because I think that this is an excuse or I want to give us all, you know, the benefit of the doubt. But I think that we need to again address and understand the culture that we live in because we've got to have the context to maybe ask the question and answer it. Why are we not experiencing this? Well, as we've said for several weeks now, we've pointed out we are living in post-Christendom. Christendom is the idea of the Christian world, that Christianity is, is heavily influencing anything and everything uh, in the world that we're living in. We are in post-Christendom because we are no longer the influential center of the universe. That being said, don't for a second believe that there are not still massive ripples of Christendom all around us. And see, most of us, maybe even without knowing it, we are grasping for any of those we can get our hands on. We're like somebody drowning, reaching for the side of the pool. If I could just somehow grab a piece of Christendom and, and salvage it and pull it back over here, that would make me feel a little bit better. So that's still going on. Also, very important to point out, we live in the United States of America. Just blew your mind, I know. But the very first time that we determined as a nation to adjust, to uh, add to, or to amend our founding values, it was by saying every single living, breathing soul has the freedom and the right to speak freely. We have the freedom of speech. Every one of us who were born in America, have been raised in America, live in America, we just live under this almost uh, non-conscientious assumption that that's the way it ought to be. We right now still have the, uh, the freedom of openly and freely worshiping. That's why we're here today. There are not police officers busting in here trying to arrest us. We actually have a police officer here protecting us. Why is any of this relevant or important? Because I will say 
Peter's not speaking against any of that here. Go through 1 Peter and he won't be speaking against any of what I just brought up. But here's why. Peter's not writing this letter even assuming the existence of any of that. If you called Peter on the telly and started talking about freedom of speech and worship, Peter would say, what is that? Tell me more about this. Christendom, the Christian world, what on earth are you talking about? The gospel is just beginning to spread. To think that it's the major influence of everything in the world, that would have blown Peter's mind right out of his head. Here's why this is relevant. It's because fair, unfair, good or bad or whatever, it's the context with with which most of us have grown up in. And, And we don't even realize at times how assuming we are because of it. That's why when we travel around the world, we're pretty stumped by the way that things are. I say all of this to you to make sure that you understand. Do not confuse Western civilization with the new heaven and the new earth or the kingdom of God in its entirety. It's not. But we operate and we live and we think at times as as if it is. A lot of us, we think about the way it was, and I wish it was the way that it was. And I I would say to you this morning that if you think that the way we had it or the good old days, that like that's the ideal, what that's really exposing is that you have no idea what the Lord has in store. This is not the promised land. It's coming, but it's not arrived yet. We really, really need to understand this because we need to prayerfully ask, Lord, um, this is where you put me. Um, I didn't ask when I was born to my mother's womb to be born in Tennessee, but I was. And then I grew up in Texas. I lived in Kansas. Now I'm here in Alabama. I'm an American. This is where God has put me. But Lord, I read what your word says, and it compels me to ask, why am I not suffering? Why am I not walking through trial for the sake of your name? We really ought to be asking this question because Peter says to the exiles, brothers, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Friends, I think we ought to be surprised at the lack of fiery trial That's coming upon us. And it ought to compel us to ask the Lord, why aren't we suffering as your people? Let's dig a bit deeper into answering this question. And and to do that, let's look at what Peter tells us. Why are we not suffering as Christians? Well, Peter doesn't say this directly, but because he's writing to people who are suffering because they are living out their faith, we can read what he says to them and make some deductions. And the first one is this. If, if you and I are experiencing no suffering, no trial, no pain or anything of this nature because we're following Christ and living for him, um, it may very well be because we're not setting apart Christ as Lord. 
I'm not saying that we're not acknowledging that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, but we are not setting him apart in every part of our life as Lord over that part. Jesus doesn't want to just be Lord of Sunday morning. He wants to be Lord over it all. He is Lord over it all. And maybe there are parts of our life where we are not living that way. We're not honoring Christ as Lord. Well, Peter, when he writes to them and says, in the midst of this, set apart Christ as holy, set apart Christ as Lord, he then goes on and says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. If we're not setting apart Christ as Lord, we're probably also not ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. And in fact, we're not only probably not prepared for that, we're probably not being put in a position or a situation where we're even needing to. And friends, I would just submit to you this morning, if no one is asking us why our lives are different, it is quite possibly because our lives are not different. How can that be? How can that be for the people of God? See, I I want my life to be lived in such a way that someone would have to come to me and say, hey, Brian, in the midst of everything going on in our country and in the world around us and in the midst of these things that you're walking through with your family and these things that your friends are going through, how is it that you still have hope? Because see, then I am able to answer that question very clearly. I will tell you it's one reason and one reason only. My hope is in Jesus, period. This is why we've sung for years and years and years, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I do want to uh, encourage you, uh, if someone does ask you a question like this at work, don't just bust into a hymn. Could be a little awkward. But let the great theology of that hymn drive what you have to say because you believe it with all your heart. My hope is not in my success. That is fleeting. My hope is not in whether or not my family loves me. Um, We don't do that well sometimes. My hope is not in my status. My hope is in nothing but what Jesus Christ says about me. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, wrote the book, Knowing God. And I just read an article with him yesterday, the the, the title, I couldn't help but open this up and read it. J.I. Packer says, knowing God is not the most important thing. What? No, I love what Packer said. He said, actually, the thing that is most important is that God knows you. That Jesus Christ knows your name. Because remember, there's going to be a day when he looks at some and says, depart from me because I don't know you. But we are those who are known by him. Our hope is in Christ. We should be living a life that gives us the opportunity to share why. Maybe we're not setting apart Christ as Lord. And friends, I would submit to you that if we're not setting apart Christ as Lord, we're probably not setting apart ourselves either. If you look a little further in the letter with me here in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, 
Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Christ, when he was in the flesh, um, did not follow the flesh, but submitted to the Father in everything. And now you and I, if the Spirit has come to indwell us, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to our flesh, but can follow the Spirit as well. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time is over for living like this, living in sensuality, in passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. When we decide to follow Christ, when we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, this is a determination that if Jesus is the way, that's the way I want to walk. If he's the life, that's the life that I want to live. And so it's this daily process of following after him, of seeking after the way, the truth, and the life. As Christ followers, we have this mind-blowing, double-edged knowledge that when we come to Christ in that moment, we are setting apart Christ as Lord. We are acknowledging, Lord Jesus, you reign over everything. But the other side of this is when we submit our lives to Christ, we understand that this process begins happening, that Jesus is setting us apart. That our lives are being set apart by the Lord. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, For I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let me ask you to think through this with me. Was Paul crucified when he wrote this? No. Was Paul still alive when he wrote this? Yes. So what in the world does Paul mean? I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What he means is, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Daily, my life is being set apart for the sake of the name of Jesus. And so friends, again, if no one is asking me, why is your life different? It's probably because my life isn't different. And I just want to ask, how is that possible if you and I are this chosen race, holy nation, royal priesthood, the people of God put into this lost world to shine a light in the darkness? How's that even possible? It shouldn't be. On another note, some of us actually may be suffering 
or walking through trial. But if anybody took the time to ask us about it, we would say, but I don't see Jesus anywhere in this whole thing. I don't see how this thing I'm walking through is bringing glory and honor to Jesus. Well, maybe we're suffering not from following Christ, but because we're actually still following ourselves. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15. After he is addressed, suffering for Christ's sake, Peter says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Peter says, Look, you don't need to suffer because you can't control your anger. Because you can't control your lust for what somebody else has. Because you can't keep your nose out of people's business. Because you can't keep your mouth shut. You definitely don't need to suffer for those things. Those things are sin. That's not what I'm talking about. He goes on. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment begins with us, church family. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If I'm suffering, or I'm being persecuted, or I'm walking through trial um, because I am walking in holiness and righteousness, because I am walking in the way of Jesus, Jesus says, Brian, keep walking. I am with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. My strength is your strength. Keep walking. I will receive glory through this. But if I'm suffering because I just keep making stupid decisions or I'm living like an imbecile or I keep walking back like a dog to its vomit to the same sin over and over and over, that's on me. Make no mistake, even in the midst of that, Jesus is with me. This may sound like the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard, but I do believe Jesus would be the friend that would hold your hair back while you were throwing up. But Jesus would also say to you and to me the same thing that he said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Sometimes the suffering that we're walking through, I believe, is the Lord saying to us, wake up! Like, Brian, I have brought you from death to life, and you're living like you, for some reason, want to go back from life to death. That makes no sense. That's not what you've been called to. That's not very characteristic of a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Sometimes, church family, the suffering's on us. Well, let's go back to the beginning of this letter for just a minute. Let's remember where all of this started. If you'll turn back with me to the first chapter, verse 3. 
Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter says, friends, because of this, you are going to walk through trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christ follower, you have been born again to a living hope. Because of this, church family, let's live out this living, everyday, unshakable hope together. That's what we're called to. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks on behalf of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. However God has strengthened you and gifted you, use it for the benefit, not just of the church, but of all of those around you, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter goes on. Humble yourselves, therefore. Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion and glory forever and ever. Amen. Peter's call to follow the way of the cross, to embrace this life of suffering that's followed by glory. This is the framework in which we are to live. And the only reason that you and I can live there is that we know hope changes everything. And we have this hope. 
church family, we are called to thrive on the margins. We are no longer the influential center of the universe. And that's okay. Because we will thrive on the margins because we are men and women of the gospel. Because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, sons and daughters of the most high God. The spirit of God working in our lives, eternity burning in our hearts. That's who we're called to be. And, and when we're living this out, we will walk in community together. We will display this pastoral care uh, in one another's lives. We will live and push one another on mission every day for the sake of the gospel. That's everyday church. That's what we're called to as disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, most of whom have probably already gathered, may still be gathered, many of whom gather in secret because they are being persecuted or suffering for the sake of your name. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on them that you would be glorified, that the gospel would move forward. Lord, would you give us an overwhelming desire to live a life that causes those around us to desperately want to know, where do you get this hope? How do you have the audacity to think and live this way? Lord Jesus, it's because of you. This morning we have the great opportunity in worship to take communion. Uh, this is for anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The night before Jesus died, he broke bread with his disciples and he told them, from now on, when you do this, you're going to remember that my body was broken for you. Jesus took the cup and said, from now on, every time you drink this, you're going to remember my blood was spilled for you that you might have life. As Peter said, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So we invite you this morning, whether you come alone or with a friend or with your family, to take a moment to remember no one took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down for you. Lord Jesus, we exalt you. We praise you. 
we proclaim this morning that you are the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You are Prince of Peace. You're the only one worthy of our praise. And so we bring it. We invite you to come. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.